Well, welcome everyone. This is Susan Parker with ELR Legal Search. I'm joined by Tim Reagan, also of ELR Search, and Dr. Larry Richard. I've had the pleasure of knowing Larry for about five years now, and I love the work he does. He sort of brings the science to what I've been viewing in my career for the last 25 or 30 years. Larry practiced law for about 10 years. Then he became a psychologist, getting his PhD at Temple University. And for the last 20 years, he's been really focused on how lawyers think. He's got a great firm called Lawyer Brain, and we're just happy to have him here to talk about, you know, how do we kind of continue this conversation and talk about how we help firms really successfully integrate laterals, help everyone at the firm feel more engaged and more successful. So, Larry, thank you again for being here with us. Thanks, Susan. Pleasure to be back. So previously, we've talked about the psychology of uncertainty. We've talked about, you know, the psychology of habit forming and how that relates to this idea of, of what are some of those underlying things that are going on that could be working against our talent acquisition and integration and retention strategies. Today, we're going to talk about engagement a little bit more and, and how to really move forward with the right mindsets, as you talked about last time, as, as well as some of the, the right activities. Great. So let's start with a recap of the first two sessions, because those are absolutely indispensable in order to make the engagement material that I'm going to talk about today work. If you just do the things I'm going to talk about in today's session and you don't heed the things we talked about in the previous two podcasts, today's material, even though it's really powerful, simply won't work. So first, you have to address the issues of people's ongoing reactions to the uncertainty that keeps cropping up and keeps expanding and keeps stressing us out, even though for many it's behind the scenes. And I talked in that earlier podcast about how to do that. If we don't address the uncertainty and kind of lower the, the brain's threat sensing circuit activation, if, if we don't calm the threat sensitivity of our brain's system, we're not going to be able to turn our attention to the things that engage people. The second issue is habituation. We formed a new habit being away from work for two years. We can't not only we can't flip a switch and ask people to return, there has to be a gradual way to do that. But even with the gradual approach, we're never going to return to the pre-COVID way that we worked. I think that we are permanently changed by the experience we've been through. And we therefore don't, we can't count on the face-to-face -face, um, kind of informal mechanisms that we didn't even realize were beneficial pre-COVID. We can't count on them as ways of building culture. We have to find new ways of building culture. And the one that I propose the most is really what we're going to talk about today, shifting your mindset and deploying the principles that are based on innate values that are the key scientific underpinnings of people's ongoing levels of high engagement. So let me break that down. If you want an engaged workforce, the main principle to keep in mind is that engagement naturally follows when your workforce, when the individuals that are working for you feel on an ongoing day-by-day -day basis that they're having a desirable workplace experience, period, end of message. 
And it's further enhanced, this is kind of icing on the cake, if they feel that you, the employer, or a representative of the employer, in that case, a specific supervisor who helps them you know, directly, if they feel that the supervisor and the workplace that they represent have a genuine interest in seeing me for who I am and in helping me bring out the best of myself. It's so true because I have said this for years, it matters how people feel at work. And it seems like a lot of times when you know, we have culture per issues or something we want to solve, we just throw a program at it. And to me, that goes to your point that we don't have the right mindset. We have to really care and demonstrate that and, and recognize how people feel at work matters. Well, here's, here's the evidence, Susan, that we don't have the right mindset. I've been doing training. You very kindly said 20 years. Um, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. And throughout that time, I've done, I don't know, probably hundreds of training programs, workshops, leadership development programs with law firms and the corporate legal departments. I can count on one hand the number of times that my client did a pre and post measure to ask the question, to answer the question, does the intervention that we used and, and we spent valuable billable time putting our people through this, did it improve anything? Did we get any payoff for our investment? It's not that I argued against it. I actually, in most um, client engagements, I propose that to the client because I think it's good for both of us to have a target and to have a metric because I'm confident that the science is good science. And if you have that confidence, you should want to measure the pre and the post. But for some reason, the legal profession just doesn't have a strong interest in doing pre and post measures to see if they're getting the value out of the invested training program time. What I've seen, Larry, is that we don't do it consistently in the legal field. We do it one day, we do a training and we pat ourselves on the back and we think that we'll get great results, but we never follow up six months, 12 months, 18 months. We just, we did one training and it was what it was and that's it. Is that what you've that's seen? Right. Yeah, that's certainly uh, my experience, Tim. And I think, you know, that uh, brings to the table another issue, which is learning comes in at least two different flavors. There's intellectual learning or what's sometimes called substantive learning. And then there's active learning or behavioral learning or what scientists sometimes call procedural learning. That would be like learning to ride a bicycle, right? So lawyers are principally acquainted with the first type of learning. CLE is what we're most familiar with. And the CLE um, model is I go to a lecture, I sit in a room while an expert stands in the front of the room and tells me updates to the tax code or whatever it is that I'm learning. I keep some copious notes about the new legal principles that are being shared. I now am a smart person and I integrate those new learnings into my database. And because I have a scaffolding, I can absorb them pretty quickly and become a more educated lawyer for that experience. That's all 100% cognitive processing. I can, everything's going on inside my cranium. And that's fine. That's a great model. And lawyers are very good at that model. 
The problem is we've done it for so long and we've done it exclusively. When people are presented with learning of the other type of procedural learning, we assume that there's just one learning and we treat procedural learning opportunities in the same mechanism, the same way rather that we treat cognitive learning. And it doesn't work because procedural learning, if I showed you a video of how to ride a bicycle and I said, okay, Tim, you're on your own. You have no ability to get on that bicycle right then and there and ride the bike. You just can't do it just because I told you how to do it or showed you how to do it. What's missing? What's missing is two things. One is practice and the other is feedback. And actually there Rutgers University uh, about 15 years ago did a very comprehensive study of the adult learning model. How do we learn uh, procedural learning? And they came up with 22, not two, 22 different components. None of them are indispensable. Well, one or two are indispensable, but you don't need all 22. But what they found is the more of these 22 components that you employ in training people, the better people learn and the longer they retain the learning. So that doesn't apply to cognitive learning, but it does apply to procedural learning. Learning leadership skills, learning the principles of engagement, learning to shift your mindset, even though that doesn't look like learning to ride a bicycle, those are aspects of procedural learning. There is some cognitive learning involved. Those are hybrid types of learning. And that's what's tricky because you recognize that there's a cognitive component and you think, oh, I got this, this is cognitive. But no, it's more complex. It's cognitive and behavioral. And so you need a cognitive behavioral approach to learning this. And that, that means that we need to design programs that have some repetition built in. And that's why, you know, just passively taking in the information, I'll give you a good example. There's um, I do a lot of teaching of psychological resilience. Lawyers, as you know from my, my personality research, are immensely lower in resilience than the public. Nine out of 10 lawyers have a, a resilience score in the bottom half of the scale. So we're very thin-skinned. And sorry, lawyers, I know everybody feels bad hearing that statistic because that's what low-resilience people do. We feel bad when we learn that we're low in resilience, but <laughs> that's the nature of the beast. Um, so... I teach people resilience skills and I recommend a great book. It's a self-help book written by the leading authority in building psychological resilience in a scientific way. And that's Karen Rivich's book, The Resilience Factor. Well, a lot of people write this down. They actually go out and buy the book and they read the book and then they call me up and say, hey, I read that book and nothing changed. And I say, did you do the exercises? Some of them will say, what exercises? Some will say, well, I didn't do them. I read them, you know, and I can picture, I mean, I'm a smart guy. I can picture what they, you know, what you have to do. I said, yeah, but did you do them? Well, not, I mean, I did them in my head. How many times? Well, once. That doesn't cut it. The whole point is that you have to build new pathways in your brain so that when a trigger event causes the older traditional low resilience response, which is your norm, the automatic negative thought pattern, when that trigger causes that old response to start welling up, you want your brain to go, oh, no, wait, I have a path of less resistance called this new response. Right. So, so basically, we need to build new neural pathways, and we do that by rehearsal. 
Now, rehearsal is boring and tedious. Lawyers don't like tedious. We like to keep our very smart brains active. Well, I have bad news for us. To build the things that I'm about to explain, we need to have this tedious part built in as well as the interesting, exciting new part. So these principles work really well, but they only work if you do the hard work of deploying them in ways that make people, that build, that build a new response to people. It's kind of like the resilience example that I gave you, but instead of resilience, we're gonna talk about some other factors. And in fact, these other principles overlap with some of the resilience skills. Resilience is kind of a type O blood type of thing. So uh, when you raise somebody's resilience, you actually build their engagement at work as well. It's kind of an indirect way to do it. But I want to talk about the direct ways to build engagement. So let's start with the idea that there are four primary and five secondary principles of building psychological engagement in your workforce. And they all have to do with evoking a positive experience in the individual. That what they don't have to do with, and that's what we call that intrinsic motivation, because we are activating intrinsic values, intrinsic motivators. We are tapping into something that somebody already places importance on and giving them the belief, the experience that I am now getting something that I value in an ongoing way. And when we do that, they're going to be more positive about their organization, about the person that supervises them, and about the idea of staying and being engaged in their workplace. So what we have to do is uh, deploy these four major and five secondary principles. The second layer, equally as important as executing these nine principles correctly, is the mindset that we use in deploying these principles. And as I said, when I talked last time about habituation, the same caveat applies here. If we deploy these principles without also adopting the right mindset, the principles, no matter how powerful they are, you won't get the benefit that you expect without the right mindset. Let me give you an example. One of the principles is autonomy. I mentioned that previously. Autonomy in the sense that people feel like they make important choices, important choices that matter to them about things that affect their workplace. You know, do I get to make decisions that affect me? Do I get to have some say in the, the benefits that I get in work? Do I get to say something about the work and how it's assigned to me? Do I get to say something about deadlines? Whatever, I'm just making up the things. But the point is, if a person feels like my supervisor or you know the principals in our firm or the way that they that I do work here, um, clearly I feel in an ongoing way this law firm and the people that I interact with in this firm, they really care about my bringing out my best. They care about me being on a path that's progressively moving toward excellence. They care about my having the experience that I want to have. If that mindset is there, you almost can do no wrong. But 
if your mindset is, let's say you're a partner supervising an associate and your mindset is, okay, this is my best associate. I've got a really important client. I need my best associate to do the work because I want to shine for this client. So I'm going to give the assignment to the associate and I'm going to say, get it on my desk by four. And what am I thinking? I'm thinking I need the associate to do the best work because I want that good work for the client. I'm not interested in what's the experience of the associate. I'm saying in this hypothetical, mm-hmm. not saying that partners in general feel that way. I'm just saying if you had a partner that feels this way, here's what happens. The associate feels like, and, and I've actually seen this in uh, you know evaluations. If you look on any one of the websites that track you know, evaluations of law firms, they say, I feel like a galley slave. I feel like my job is fungible. No one really knows that I'm here. I could be doing any, you know, the people feel anonymous. They feel unseen. They feel unimportant. And if you give a work assignment and you don't even say anything, just the mindset itself is, I need your work for my client, that associate's going to feel that mindset. Contrast that. And and suppose you even say it. I'm going to exaggerate to make a point. Nobody would actually say this, but this illustrates the point I'm making. Suppose as the associate says, you know, I read this stuff about what motivates human beings and they say it's intrinsic, not extrinsic, by which I mean, you know, I I don't want to do it because you want me to do it, or I don't want to do it because you're paying me. I want to do it because it gives me some fulfillment of my needs. So partner X, I've learned from my research into positive psychology that autonomy is very important to me. So I want more choice, important choices. I want to be able to make important choices. And the partner says, you know, I've read that same research and I think you're right. Having more important choices is good. Here's your damn choices. And and the partner tells me some things that I now get to decide for myself. And they are in fact, important, meaningful choices that I get to make. But the way that the partner conveyed that good news to me is with an attitude that really sucked, that showed me that the partner resents my newfound autonomy. If that were the case, even though the partner properly deployed the autonomy principle and it was actually well executed, it doesn't produce any gain at all because the attitude was off. Millennials and other young uh, members of the workforce, young lawyers and others, you know, they're more demanding on this, right? They're saying, we need this. We need you to see us. Millennials have been raised as a general rule with much greater emphasis on being undeserving to have a positive experience in school, in the workplace. They've been groomed to to expect that they will be treated as people with unlimited potential, that they will be treated well, and that their you know, whims will be honored and that they will be protected from unpleasantness. Yeah. And for many of us, these other generations, you know, I remember being miserable at work and having a terrible boss who was a screamer and threw things. My mom said to me, I remember this was back in the late 80s, well, you're not supposed to be happy at work. I mean, get over it. They paid you, didn't they? And that that really, 
I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> just and that, that worked for a long time, except now we have lots of science that says that actually depresses the capacity of people to be excellent. For sure. For sure. Jim, you were going to say something as well. No, I was going to ask, Larry, is the workplace ready? Is the generation ahead of the millennials, are we ready to accommodate them? Well, many of us are not. Um, but I think a lot of lawyers are evidence-based. They pay attention to evidence. And now we have good scientific evidence. I am hopeful that those, you know, that portion of the legal profession that pay attention to the evidence will hear the science behind these principles and will say, you know, I've been doing it differently because I didn't know any better. But now that I have this evidence, I'm willing to shift. Will there be some that don't? Sure. You know, it's easy to get stuck in ways that you do things and to believe that, you know, that's the right way. And any new, you know, newfound science is specious and you can dismiss it with a wave of the hand. We hope there's a smaller number of those, but, you know, no one has scientific knowledge of how many of each group there are, but I'm hoping that the former group is larger than the latter. When we think about engagement, Larry, and these generational differences, how do we engage the partners who some are at home, some don't want to go back to the office? How do we pair that with some of the associates? Some are at home, some don't want to go back to the office. How do we engage everyone over time and have a successful outcome for the firm? So that's a great gateway question, Tim, to lead into the nine principles that I talked about. So these principles work, luckily, just exactly the same with partners as they do with associates. Status differences, age and experience differences really don't impact the efficacy of these principles. The principles work because they draw out the best in individuals. They're intrinsic by nature. So what are the four main principles? Number one, I've already mentioned, that's the autonomy principle. People are much more highly motivated to work when they feel like they have some control over their own destiny. When I get to make important decisions periodically about things that affect my experience at work, I'm gonna be more engaged than when I feel like I'm being micromanaged, I have no say in the matter, my opinion doesn't count, and so forth. And there are lots and lots of different ways to activate uh, this experience. And that includes how lawyers who are supervising others treat the people they're supervising. It includes the kind of culture, cultural norms and expectations, um, guidelines, um, mythologies, things that are rewarded and valued. There's a lunch, lot of different organizational level tweaks that a firm can make as well in addition to the individual one-on-one -on -one behaviors that they're trained to do. And so we have to attack it at both levels. We have to implement the institutional changes that create this ongoing culture of your individual experience matters in a genuine way. And we have to treat people one-on-one -on -one in that same way. So autonomy is number one. Number two, people want to have meaning and purpose in their work. They want to feel that what they do matters, that the effort that they expend isn't futile. There have been some marvelous experiments with this. Dan Ariely at Duke University, uh, the author of many books, but his first 
bestseller was called Predictably Irrational. And in that book, he details a study, I believe it was that book. He talks about a study where they had, uh, I think it was some engineers came into a room and they asked uh, one group of them to do some sort of a task and put their responses on paper. And the experimenter was sitting in the front of the room and they would accept the responses and carefully place the paper in a stack of papers. Another group did the same exact task. And when they finished and handed their papers in, the experimenter took the papers and put them in a shredder without looking at them. I'm sorry, the, the second experiment was they looked at them and put them in a shredder. And then the third condition was they came and took the paper without looking at it and put it right in the shredder. And they found that the people in the first group were the most highly motivated. Duh. You know, when you see your hard work turned in and the instructor puts it right in the shredder without looking at it, why would you be motivated? It's, it seems like a little thing. People sometimes don't connect the doing of the work, you know, is it inherently interesting? And the fact that some other human being places value on it and conveys to you what you just did meant something. In the same fashion, if I get, am given an assignment, let's say I'm an associate again and a partner gives me an assignment and says, answer this legal question and get the answer on my desk by four. And they don't tell me who it's for, or maybe they tell me who it's for so I can bill it, but they don't tell me what the scope of it is or how my response is going to be integrated into something that larger that the partner does or how it's going to benefit the client in the long run. If I don't know any of that stuff and I'm just doing the work as a pure legal exercise, it's like a law school exercise and it's very extrinsic. It doesn't give me any purpose to hang my hat on, but contrast that with, let me spend a minute or two telling you how your contribution is going to get aggregated with other things that I've asked other people to do and some things that I'm doing. And here's what I'm going to present to the client. And here's why this matters. And if this is successful, here's what it will mean to the client. That little moment that took just 60 seconds makes a world of difference because I feel like I did something meaningful. Number three, and again, attitude matters. If I do it in a surly, resentful, uh, you know, detached way where I'm just kind of going through the motions, uh, it, it doesn't help. But if I do it in a way that says, I see that this is important to you to understand the meaning and why what you're doing matters, that makes a difference. So, um, you know, I was in the supermarket yesterday, it just so happens. And it was the, I could tell it was the end of the shift for the checkout person. And she was doing everything to communicate by her language, her body language, her demeanor. I'm really not interested in getting your groceries through this checkout. I'm interested in packing up and going home. And she put a carton of eggs in a bag and she almost threw it into the bag, but she put it the first thing into the bag. It was the bottom item on the bag. I may not be the expert in grocery bag filling. I don't think putting eggs on the bottom of the bag is like the best way to go. And then at the end, she had the bag filled. She lifted it up by both handles and dumped it at the end of the counter. And it was like, oh my God. <laughs> Turned out that the eggs were packed very well in their carton and none of them broke. But I had a moment there where I thought she is not really feeling the love uh, from this store. 
So uh, you really need to convey that through the culture, through the way you treat people, through the expectations, the rules that you have, et cetera. Number three, belonging and connection. They're all related. So people want to feel like I work in a workplace where I'm not isolated, but I am connected, connected to people, connected to the mission, connected to maybe something spiritual, connected to uh, some history that I'm proud of. There are a lot of things wrapped up in this piece that, that is called connection. People want to feel like I belong to some entity that I'm proud of and that is part, I'm part of something bigger. And again, something bigger that matters. Um, people want to feel like they have a connection to the human beings in their organization, to the people. They want to feel that the people see them for who they are, that I am seen authentically and I have psychological safety. I have permission to be myself, even if it may not be the most popular way to be, and I won't get penalized for it. People want to feel like I have the right and the opportunity and the support to develop friendships in the workplace. And I don't want to work in a workplace where it feels like friendships are frowned upon because they're inefficient and they cut down on my billable hours. You know, oh, you're at the uh, you're, you're spending two minutes catching up on last night's Netflix at the water cooler, um, but you're not billing time. So that's a that's a negative. Spending time at that water cooler is a negative. If that's the case, I don't feel like I'm getting um, motivator number three fulfilled. Um, I want to feel like you see that this so-called downtime, this non-billable time, is actually very important in building something beyond this moment. Um, and, and it's really, really important, not only in building engagement, but this particular one of building connection and belonging also tends to build well-being in the sense of health, physical and psychological and emotional mental health. It tends to build more receptivity to inclusion. So diversity and inclusion initiatives are going to benefit when somebody feels more connected. It builds engagement in the sense of longevity and less likely to consider quitting and so forth. A lot of other benefits flow from this. And then the final piece we've already talked about, uh, we talked about strengths. This is a bigger component, a bigger piece of which strengths is a component. And that is mastery, competence, and strengths. People want to feel like in my workplace, I feel like I am on a progressive path towards steadily building competence in my craft. And I want to feel, this is where mindset really matters. I want to feel like the person who helps me grow in that respect really sees me, understands what I want to grow in, how I want to become competent, and helps me move in that direction. I want to feel like I am supported by one or more people, not just by a lawyer that supervises me, but by the professional development team and by the others, by my peers and colleagues, by the culture and the norms, by the reward systems, by all of that. I want to feel like I can count on progressively improving my skills as a lawyer and maybe some non-lawyering skills, some interpersonal skills, some judgment skills, some skills of strategic thinking, maybe skills that help me take on other roles beside pure practice of law. Um, and along the way, if I feel like there's progress that I can regularly see and the mindset 
of the supervisor is, I see you and I'm genuinely interested in giving you what you need to continually grow. Along the way, if I can begin to feel that that concentration of effort on my growing better leads to excellence and I can start feeling a sense of mastery, that takes me up a notch in my intrinsic motivation. And then the final peak of this particular bucket is if I feel like I've actually gotten to the point where I can recognize certain strengths of mine and I can bring those strengths to bear in doing what I do. And I feel like the people in my workplace and the principles that I operate under in my workplace, I feel like they actually reward my using my best strengths, even though they may not be the same as somebody else's strengths. And that the things I'm not that good at, I have the freedom to make those lower priority, not to be incompetent about them, but to make them lower priority. So I get to use my strengths more of the time. And the research shows that when people get to do that, they feel extraordinarily engaged. I believe the Gallup statistic is they are three times more engaged than people who report they don't get to use their strengths in their work. Three times, a multiple of 300%, that's huge. So strengths are really important. And then the secondary ones are only secondary because there's not as much research on them. Although the first one I'm gonna mention actually does have a lot of research, but not, it wasn't, the research on it wasn't linked to engagement until recently. So the, the five secondary principles, and many of these overlap with the four main principles, which is why another reason why they're secondary. Um, these things are not neat, precise divisions. All of the four that I mentioned interact with each other and they all overlap. Um, so the first of the five secondary principles is clarity about expectations. When someone gives me an assignment and it's very clear what's expected of me in terms of when it's due, how it's due, what's due and so forth, that's helpful. Obviously that has to be navigated with the autonomy principle because if I want some say in deciding those things, then to the extent that a supervisor gives me autonomy, they're also giving me less clear expectations because I'm now deciding. But that actually is an offset. So if, if you have low autonomy and you don't know what's expected of you, that's the worst possible outcome. If you have autonomy and you know what's expected of you, even though there's a little bit of a tension between those two, that's the ideal. Number two, people want to be respected in the workplace. For this, I point to the work of Christine Porath, P-O-R-A-T-H at Georgetown University. She is a social psychologist who has studied um, conflict and uh, um, you know, the respect in the workplace. And she's found that disrespect in the workplace has a very measurable substantive negative cost to employers. It is hugely expensive to employers to have people disrespecting others in the workplace. And conversely, respect, valuing people, treating people in the way they want to be experiencing the workplace. It's just a kind of a specific version of the general principle that I started with. People want to have a positive experience in the workplace. And when you diminish that experience by being a tyrannical super, you know, supervisor or by using a paper chase approach to training your lawyers, you know, humiliating somebody in front of their peers, that's the worst thing you can do. 
That's not my opinion. That's what neuroscience tells us. Number three, people want to feel proud of their work, not pride in the sense of I'm an individually proud person. That's a separate issue. This is institutional pride. I've already referred to this in the um, third competency, the mastery and uh, the, the, the sense of belonging. People want to feel pride in some organization that's bigger than themselves that they belong to. I'm proud to belong to this firm. I'm proud to be part of this rock and practice group that I belong to. When you can foster a sense of individual pride, it really makes a difference in the engagement that people have. And there have been several very large studies, two in particular, um, in, I think in 2019, that looked at pride and uh, in the institution and showed how powerful they are in increasing engagement. Um, number four, people want uh, a sense of fairness. They want to feel like I am fairly treated in the workplace. And to the this is kind of you don't get increased engagement when you treat people fairly, but you really get disengagement when you treat them unfairly. Two points about fairness. Number one, it's in the eye of the beholder. So you really have to ask people, you know, does this feel like a fair solution? Hint, getting people's input and giving them a say in the things that affect their experience is a much better way to do something because they're more likely to feel fairly treated when they had a say in shaping the solution that ultimately affects them. If you just impose it on them, it's kind of like mandating return to work. It doesn't it doesn't tick that box and people feel unfairly treated or can feel unfairly treated. And then number five is gratitude. And I'm talking here about the expression of gratitude. Gratitude, the gratitude research shows that there are two ways that gratitude benefits us. We all benefit when we feel grateful, when we shift or direct our attention toward the feeling of gratitude. So I am fortunate in life. I have many things in my life for which I am personally grateful. And my wife feels the same way. And we very frequently uh, share with each other that we're grateful for various things. But if we didn't share them, just the feeling alone that I'm grateful to be healthy, I'm grateful to have uh, you know, financial security, I'm grateful to have a good job and enjoy my job, I'm grateful to have a loving relationship. Those are things that are ongoing, which I feel very grateful for. And just my feeling of gratitude itself releases positive hormones, chemicals that make me healthier and feel better and makes me happier for others to be around me and has other payoffs. Uh, Robert Emmons, a psychologist who's studied this more than any other human being, um, has reported many, many payoffs for just feeling gratitude. But the big payoff comes not just from feeling the gratitude, but from expressing it to others. When I tell you that I'm grateful for what you did, number one, I feel good about that transaction. Number two, you feel good about that transaction. Number three, it actually goes a long way toward building trust and connection. So it helps build social connection, which is something we've talked about as one of the primary principles. And number four, when people express gratitude in an ongoing basis, they tend to be more engaged and more optimistic. So it has all kinds of secondary payoffs. And the best part, it costs nothing. It costs absolutely nothing. So some, you know, there are some great 
um, ways that firms have implemented this. I know a number of firms that have passed out gratitude cards and they just invite people. You know, when you see somebody else in the firm doing something that you're grateful for, just fill out this card and put their name on it and send it to them. Um, or they do that electronically. Or I've seen um, partner retreats where the managing partner asks a partner to stand up or a group of partners to stand up and calls them out for doing something right, for doing something that was aligned with the firm's values. And they celebrate the fact that, you know, it's not that it made us any money. It's not that it did something, um, you know, earth shaking. They did the right thing in a situation where they could have done the wrong thing. And we want to call them out and applaud them for doing that. And it's kind of one of those gratitude moments that also cements firm values and aligns everybody along those values. So gratitude has lots of positive uses. It's a very powerful engagement tool, among other things. All nine of those are just stellar. I, Larry, what I've always loved about what you do is you've got so much data and science behind each one of these, right? So, you know, like you said, it's really not your opinion. It's about what the science and the data says. Love that. Exactly. You know, Larry, you've talked so much about engagement and, and the funny thing is most of us have experienced disengagement. So it's wonderful to be able to hear what drives engagement. I know that from my experience, we used to talk about um, the three gets, you know, what people do when they feel disengaged, they, they get by, right? They don't do their best work. Um, and then they sometimes uh, even do things like get even. You know, where they, and that could be anything from withholding information to violence in the workplace. And then eventually they get out, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. Um, and so we really, as, as leaders within organizations, want to avoid those three gets and look to these really scientific ways um, and, and, and I think humane ways to drive engagement. So I, I really appreciate everything you've talked about today. I think we've got great content for our listeners to think about. I can't thank you enough for your insights on driving engagement, even in times of uncertainty and in times when we've developed habits we never knew we were going to develop in these very ever-changing times. So again, thank you so much for your expertise. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Susan. It's been such a pleasure for me to participate in these podcasts, and I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you.